Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Life Science Report, a podcast from Back Bay Life Science Advisors. My name is Pete Bach, and I'm a managing director here at Back Bay in Boston. Today, we'll be launching a new feature on the podcast, answering listener questions and common issues we find our clients facing. To take us through these questions, we will be regularly joined by two senior members of the Back Bay team, Christian Tienel and Brendan Wang, who are both engagement managers with a tremendous amount of experience in the life sciences as it spans scientific, clinical, and commercial issues. If you'd like to submit a question to be considered for a future episode with Brendan and Christian, you can find a submission form on our website, bblsa.com slash podcasts. That's bblsa.com backslash podcasts. Today, we'll be discussing issues related to pricing and market access. So with that, I'll turn it over to you, Brendan and Christian. Thanks, Pete. Um, so just by way of, of brief introduction to myself. So so yeah, so my name is uh, Brendan. I'm an engagement manager here with Back Bay. Been with the company for about four and a half years advising uh, all stages of, of companies from, uh, as we like to say, two guys in a molecule up to the, the big pharmas um, of, of the world. Uh, and so, you know, I come from uh, another consulting firm where it focused uh, for two years, pretty exclusively on pricing and market access. And so I think that's sort of the angle that we wanted to take for our discussion today. Christian, over to you. Thanks, Brendan. Uh, so yeah, my name is Christian Tienel. I'm an engagement manager here at Back Bay as well. Uh, also been with the firm for a similar amount of time as Brendan, about four and a half years. Um, worked on a range of kind of you know strategy-oriented projects, a lot of sort of portfolio planning, indication prioritization, a lot of the you know typical kind of work that we do. Um, my background's also uh, at another firm, that same one as Brendan, prior to Backbay. So background in kind of pricing and market access, a lot of launch pricing and contracting in the U.S. and Europe. In uh, my undergraduate backgrounds in chemical engineering, prior to that. Awesome. Yeah, so I think you know, um, you know, as Pete mentioned in the the intro, um, we're kind of kicking off a new segment. So the the two of us uh, will kind of be tackling uh, client questions, and so we thought we would uh, start with a question that we've been getting. I would say with m much more in the last two years, and I don't know if any particular event necessarily precipitated that. Um, but but the question, and it's usually posed as as you know, for an early stage startup, like is now the right time to think about pricing strategy and market access considerations we're in and then you know insert early stage you know either pre the pre series a series a series b um you know that that sort of thing and so i think you know when you are an early stage company uh it makes a lot of sense you're thinking about your resources and your timing constraints and things feel far off uh you know it's particularly commercialization um we all know can take you know 10 or 15 years if you're talking about right at the you know inception of, of company startup there um and so things like launch pricing and market access strategy can get deprioritized at those stages i would say at, at back bay our perspective is that it is never too early uh to start thinking about pricing and access and i think you know, give, particularly given that price is going to be a key determinant of the you know total market opportunity for you, um, and so you're always going to get. It doesn't matter what stage of company you're 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 currently at. You are always going to get questions around price benchmarks, potential access hurdles. You know, have you thought about your pathway to reimbursement and and all that stuff throughout 
fundraising and partnering discussion. So it's really important to start to get a handle on it, on it early, right? Yeah, t- totally. And I think, you know, we've seen, you know, among preclinical stage companies, you know, there's a lot of questions around, okay, have you thought about, you know, how pricing and market access for your platform or product might affect how you select indications or prioritize them, you know, where, you know, what indications you might go to first or, as opposed to, you know, second, third, fourth. Um, we've also seen this, you know, for companies that are maybe phase one, phase two, a little farther along where it comes down to a little bit more, you know, getting some more certainty around, okay, what is a realistic price we might expect based on a few different potential outcomes of maybe what our pivotal data looks like? How does that affect how we might, you know, uh, come onto the market in terms of what our pricing and market access outlook might look like? You know, where do we need to contract and to what extent? Um, what is that going to get us? So all of those kinds of things. So certainly as the stage of company changes, the kind of type of focus is going to change a bit and we'll kind of get into, you know, how the kind of levels of depth can change. Um, but, you know, I think e- even having a sense of you know, what the benchmarks are that you have thought about this, you know, as we like to always say, it's really, really important, certainly in the context of, you know, company strategy, but definitely as it comes to, you know, new investors or partners and and sort of business development and strategic initiatives, you know, your ability to control the discussion around those topics, uh, you know, we're a firm believer in, you know, in that being a really important part of you, you know, getting the outcomes that that you're looking for from those types of discussions. So, you know, th- that you have those answers already, you've thought about, yeah, you know, we've thought about what are, what analog, you know, benchmarks might be. We think it's these for these reasons, we don't think it's these for these reasons. You know, th- those types of things in our experience really really go a long way in in the context of those discussions. Yeah, and so <laughs> I think the uh the the need for thinking about uh pricing and access um is pretty clear when um, you know, you're six to twelve months away uh, from you know market launch. So you, obviously, you need to think about launch pricing. What price do you enter the market with? How do you maintain and change the price of your product over time? And how do you communicate that strategy to various stakeholders? Uh, for earlier stage companies, though, you know, naturally, what what's the benefit of thinking about pricing and market access when you're two to three years away from a pivotal trial? Um, or how about if you're three to five years away from a pivotal trial, right? And so I think as Christian was alluding to, it's really about the depth um, of the analysis that you'll do. That will change. But I think the need for thinking about these things early on, hopefully, is is fairly self-evident now. And so when um, you know when when you're relatively early, you want to think about you know what's the pricing band? What are the analogs you want to benchmark to? What are the key access hurdles um, that could arise in the future and how significant are they? Again, being prepared is worth its weight in gold here. It definitely, I think if you think about, you know, let's say you're a preclinical stage company, you have maybe an asset or two, you've not yet finalized a lead indication. Maybe you're thinking about, you know, two or three that are kind of on the table, you know, having even just a sense of what the kind of benchmarks or, or sort of different kind of buckets of prices might be across the indications you're looking at can be really valuable from a strategic decision-making point of view. You you think about a situation where maybe you're thinking about a couple of rare diseases, which obviously would have a much higher sort of, you know, ability to, to price there versus maybe some more, you know, larger, maybe even a primary care type indication. Those are vastly different in terms of what that means for your broader company strategy, let alone the sort of just the, the price difference itself, right? So that can really help kind of guide what type of company we want to be and which direction do we want to go. Um, re- you know, really having that that information information to hand. 
I think the other another important piece there too is like if you're talking about one indication that's maybe you know a kind of typical self-administered injection or like a pharmacy product that's an oral that's pretty straightforward versus maybe you're thinking about an area that is kind of an inpatient you know in hospital use setting where from a access perspective that is a lot more challenging certainly in the US and in Europe as well where now you're having to fit into kind of a DRG or a case rate payment as opposed to more of a you know kind of traditional free pricing in the way that we think about most sort of pharmacy products so that can also really help you kind of understand what are the strategic implications of some of these choices that we might be making even at a very early stage. Um, so again, I think it's really important to consider the, it's, it's not only just the price itself, but sort of what that means for your broader development strategy, you know, what capabilities you're going to be needing, how that really all ties into whatever the kind of at, at that stage, the kind of message you're going out to investors or even I guess increasingly to the street with for, as we've seen a lot of preclinical IPOs in the past few years. Yeah. 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 No. All great points. And I think, you know, we'll try to make this a little bit more concrete um, and and talk about uh, some blinded, of course, uh, some blinded uh, kind of case examples that, that we've worked on to try and illustrate some of these. Um, but I think, you know, if we if we now switch to some slightly later stage companies, you know, w- what do you focus on then? Um, so I think when you are starting to more deliberately uh, interrogate pricing and market access um, and how that fits with your story for a later stage company. So really there, what you're trying to do is you're you're really trying to move from those broad buckets that uh, Christian was alluding to, and you're trying to dial in on a narrower um, price range, um, potentially from a broader uh, payer sample too. Uh, so again, it depends on sort of the extent of and, and overall strategy, you know, are you trying to commercialize this yourself? Are you trying to commercialize it just in one region versus another? Um, or do you want to get sort of a broad picture of, of you know, multiple markets? Because you're going to want to talk to payer stakeholders across the US and then also the, the major European markets. Um, you also want to think at this stage about what types of payers make sense uh, to engage. So like Christian was saying, a few moments ago, you know, if you're talking about those subcutaneous self-injectables or, or maybe a, a pharmacy dispensed product, then you're likely going to be talking to a managed care organization, pharmacy uh, or medical um, director, probably a, f- a pharmacy director. Or if you're in an inpatient setting, then you're going to be subject to talking to a hospital pharmacist or some other hospital stakeholder who has much more insight into what products can or cannot be used within the confines of, of their healthcare facility, right? And so already there, the setting of where the therapy is administered has a pretty big impact on the types of payers that you even need to, to talk to. Um, payer mix also, or payer channel. So are you working with a largely uh, commercially insured patient population, um, or are you working with um, a lot of indigent patients? So patients who are uninsured or maybe on Medicaid. So then you'll want to talk to um, you know either former, but usually former um, CMS or state Medicaid type stakeholders to get those insights. Um, and so at that stage, that's when you really want to start thinking about those those things. Um, This could also be the stage to incorporate something like a conjoint analysis. So you want to understand with much more granularity the demand response based on price and expectations on 
discounts in that therapeutic area, patient out of pocket, like all that kind of stuff. Um, and are there follow-on indications for the ind- indication that you're focusing on? If so, what are the implications for price potential down the line? Now you have a product that is potentially trying to address um, challenges and unmet needs across different types of, of patient populations. And maybe the dynamics for each of those has a different, you know, payer type that, um, you know, could be implicated there as well. So, yeah, I think those are all really good points, Brendan. I think that probably the last point I wanted to kind of make here too, is that, you know, obviously it really depends on what the specific area is that, you know, you're looking at or, or sort of where the product is going to be positioned in terms of, Right, whether it's the specific payer mix you want to go after, who the specific stakeholders are, but also kind of like what you really need in terms of data and analysis and sort of like what's going to be sufficient from an investor or partner point of view. I think, you know, if you're uh, like a gene therapy company or someone who's doing, you know, rare disease products that, you know, from an access perspective, that's really not an area that you need to have all of your I's dotted and T's crossed and a robust, you know, huge commercial model and all this stuff. Certainly, you know, if you're launching a product in six to 12 months, you obviously are going to need all that for a bunch of other reasons. Um, but, you know, it's really, it depends on the space that you're in, right? If you're a company like that in your preclinical phase one, it's really not about, you know, have you talked to, you know, Medicare payers and whoever, that's really not relevant. But if you're, let's say, a company developing a new a novel anti-infective, um, that's maybe going to be used in a hospital setting, right? I think obviously that's that's an area that's much more sort of of a mature market. There are a lot of other kind of alternatives there. It's a much more complicated kind of pricing and reimbursement pathway. So you know if you're an early stage company there, an, an investor or partners, they're going to want to see that you've looked at the this sort of access landscape and have a sort of commercial plan, n- not to the extent that you know number of reps and really tactical stuff, but in terms of you know here's how we expect to compete. Here's the sort of price we can expect to achieve. Here's the type of share we might get. Um, you know, all of those types of of questions. So again, it really kind of depends on the specific area you're in in terms of the level of detail that you need. Um, but again, it doesn't have to be that, you know, you go out and do some six month to a year long project sort of boiling the ocean on interviewing every payer in the US and Europe and, you know, putting a huge, you know, set of work together. And in, in a lot of cases, you know, something pretty brief in terms of what are the relevant analogs here? How might a payer think about a novel product in this space qualitatively? And what's kind of a range that we can expect to achieve and maybe a high level sense of, you know, how they might restrict utilization, if at all. Um, you know, certainly in the sort of rare disease and oncology space, that's that's really as, as far as you need to go, I think, for, you know, phase two and earlier companies. And again, depends on the space that you're in, but in general, it doesn't have to be you know, a, a huge lift. These are, you know, questions that, that you can get an answer to relatively quickly too. Yeah. So, so maybe, uh, maybe Christian, we can talk about, uh, each of us, um, one or two projects that we've worked on in the last, say six to 12 months, try not to divulge any state secrets, um, in the process of that. And, um, yeah, try to make this a little bit more concrete. Um, so maybe I'll get us started. I mean, I think, This one popped into my head just a moment ago as you were kind of talking through some of the big picture there and it being, you know, specific to the therapeutic area. So we were working for a uh, client that had a phase two uh, drug in the pulmonary disease space. And one of their key questions had to do with, you know, what's the price potential for our product? 
because they had been getting a lot of questions around what is the right benchmark to use. Now, to provide some context, like there were different ways of thinking about like what is the appropriate analog here and what's the right benchmark. So their product was going to be an antibody. So one of their you know first questions was, or, or one of the questions they would get was, are you just are you going to be priced in the typical antibody range? So you know like. 30 to 50, 50 to 70 maybe these days, yeah, um, a thousand right. per year. Um, the other way that they were thinking about it was like their therapy had the potential to spare uh, steroid, you, to bring down the the um, sort of maintenance dose that uh, a patient would have to um, be on in terms of uh, oral corticosteroids. Um, and so you know, the question there is there are some other higher price therapies that have used that as a, you know oral corticosteroid sparing endpoints uh, as as their kind of measures but then the question is like do we need you know how do we do we need to explicitly study that in the trial and how big of an impact is is there right. um that that you need to see um and then the other way that they could look at it was you know is this just a pure rare disease play because technically they they're un, under 200,000 US um, patients, so it technically counts as an as an orphan disease, and so uh, you know there, right? You can get anywhere from like as you were saying, like two hundred thousand up to a million plus, right? Depending on like how rare orphan we're we're talking, um, and so I I, th I like that example because it really shows that like they were getting the gamut of questions, like oh, we think that you're gonna probably gonna be pegged to just general antibodies. Oh, we think you're going to be like a rare disease play at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. And so for them, they were like, okay, well, well, we need to put a number in our model. And that's the difference between an opportunity of 500 million and like 50 billion, right? So obviously, I think they just needed a little bit more confidence, I think, going into some of their upcoming partnering discussions with regards to there are three buckets that have been identified which of those is the right quote unquote right bucket um and i think as as you know the the answer there is that it depends like it mm -hmm. depends on who you're talking to and what the story that you're trying to articulate to that particular stakeholder is but i think at the end of the day working with us having us speak with a number of different types of payers providing all of the sort of supplemental uh background documentation to say bucket a is good for this reason, A, B, and C. Bucket B is good for these reasons, and bucket C is appropriate in these circumstances. Uh, I think really helped them a lot in terms of preparing them for those discussions and, you know, instead of, you know, finger to the wind or yeah. or just saying, oh, I, I don't know, I haven't, haven't thought about it yet. Right. At least like you kind of know what you don't know in those cases, right? As opposed to, you know, this is just not, a, this is a complete blind spot for us, right? And even in, it sounds like in that sense, you know, them having to go forward to investors of being like, look, there's three different ways that this could play out as opposed to, you know, investor asking them, how is this going to work from a pricing perspective? And then being like, well, it could be this, it could be that. I, I think, you know, that type of an approach is, 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 you know, is a lot more meaningful and impactful. And the discussion becomes more about, okay, how do we do those things as opposed to, you know, is this the, is this the right thing to do? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's it kind of limiting the universe down to like discrete 
options or potential paths. Uh, not saying you know which one of those will eventually be true or, or kind of play out, but that you've thought through all of them. You kind of have a plan of action for each of them and you have some rationale for why each of them are uh, more or less relevant. So, yeah. yeah. All right. Over to you now. Yeah, sure. So, so I think another a good example is uh, something that, that I've worked on a bit. Um, done a couple of projects with this with this client actually. Um, so it's just you know pretty early stage company. They're a preclinical uh, startup basically. Um, and I know we've mentioned the kind of anti-infective space a couple times, and I promise we work on other things than anti-infectives. But this did happen to be an anti-infectives company. Um, they had an antibody product, which was uh, you know they're sort of positioning for um, prevention of a you know a, a reactivating infection following uh, either solid organ or stem cell transplant. And kind of the interesting thing for them was you know they had a myriad of ways that they could sort of position this. They could you know treat the patient receiving the transplant sort of after surgery uh, or sort of after the transplant procedure um this sort of is a kind of prophylactic regimen which is kind of how that is traditionally done today um they had an opportunity to treat before the procedure and sort of clear out the sort of patient's resident uh you know virus of the, of this type to potentially you know mitigate the risk of reactivation following sort of the the transplant procedure and they also had some kind of opportunities within the solid organ transplant space as well in terms of, you know, treating the organ itself or the, the patient or both. Um, so, you know, a lot of questions, certainly from a clinical positioning point of view, but also if you think about from the implications of kind of pricing and access here, you know, it's, it's a pretty different type of play if you're talking about, you know, being part of a kind of basically a conditioning regimen for a transplant versus part of the sort of outpatient prophylactic regimen versus, you know, uh, potentially infusing an organ with or perfusing an organ with uh with it with a treatment so i think one of the interesting things that that we sort of helped uncover was sort of going through some initial work with you know having payers sort of think and also kind of transplant physicians think through how exactly all the, these scenarios would work out kind of helping them understand there's actually a pretty big difference in as you might imagine sort of pricing ability from anything that's on the inpatient side versus maybe an outpatient prophylactic where you know, they might be able to do sort of the first course of infusion in hospital as part of the sort of discharge or pre-discharge regimen, but then the the vast majority of the prophylaxis is done in an outpatient setting. So, you know, from a access perspective, that's much more favorable for the company because that's not you know managed so heavily by the hospital. And sort of from the payer perspective, they really want to prevent patients from kind of coming at, back in with reactivated infections, potentially risking failure of the graft that was, you know, that was transplanted um, as opposed to, you know, it's obviously a lot more complicated if you're talking about, you know, during or sort of immediately prior to the procedure. Um, so I think it was really helpful for them to sort of understand not only what that means from how they might move forward and how they might position the product, but also having thought about, you know, we really kind of fully understand the, to the extent that it is possible, kind of the different implications of each of these different approaches on sort of how we're going to move forward They've actually gone forward after kind of our first couple of projects with them and raised a pretty sizable Series A. So presumably, uh, presumably this was helpful. I'd like to think so at least. Um, but it's, an, I think, another interesting example of you know even at that early stage where they really had basically isolated a lead candidate. Um, you know, they really needed to think about these issues as they had a very material impact on you know their immediate next steps in terms of preclinical development and moving towards an initial study. Yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. Actually, I have a kind of curiosity question, maybe not as relevant to the pricing market. Well, a, a little bit anyway. <laughs> sure. But but so um, if you are talking about uh, 
perfusing an organ prior to transplantation, like where exactly does that cost get absorbed? If and in that I, in that case where you're doing pre-transplant perfusion, uh, r- right, like you're pre-treating an organ before. Yeah, as I'm sure you'll be happy to hear, Brendan. The answer is that it depends. Oh, nice. Um, it's actually. Uh, it actually is highly dependent on the specific organ type uh, that's being transplanted. There's sort of different pathways for how different types of organs are sort of procured, potentially pre-treated, and potentially perfused um, prior to a transplant. So another story for another day. Um, but it actually is a it's not it's not straightforward at all. Um, which is again was kind of part of the complexity with this particular case where it's not like you're okay we're getting approval for solid organ transplant prophylaxis. It, there's a very different sort of workflow and kind of journey for the patient and sort of how the organs are procured in each in each case and there's different stakeholders in each case as well. So again, those are things that we really wouldn't have uncovered at all had we not you know sort of done this done this work early on. So again, I think something that was really valuable for for the company. Just just to make sure I understand. So you're saying yeah. like a lung transplant versus a heart transplant versus a kidney transplant because those you know, obviously you can respect that. Yeah. The, the way that those get allocated to patients, I would have, or I, I guess I would have thought on the surface, the way that those organs get allocated to patients and who yeah. is appropriate of a candidate or, and not, and who is what priority on, on, on list. Uh, I, I would have thought that that would mean that the same funding or reimbursement mechanisms would be at play. You're saying that it's, depends on the specific organ that you're talking about? Yeah, it can depend. One of the big factors that makes it uh, a difference is that if you're talking about a kidney transplant, um, a lot of <clears throat> sort of main driver of kidney transplant is end-stage renal disease, in which case those patients all automatically qualify for Medicare. Okay. So you're talking about primarily a CMS population versus a lung or a liver transplant is a bit more of a commercially insured population generally. And so CMS has a slightly different mechanism for reimbursing the procedure or, or sort of paying for charges related to the procedure itself and charges related to the procurement of the organ versus on the commercial side, that's often sort of one large bundled payment for everything, whereas CMS sort of splits that stuff out. Um, and so that's one of the many layers of the complexity onion of, uh, of this particular situation. But yeah, there's different and there's different roles for organ procurement organizations in those cases, mm. where a lot of times for kidney transplants, they're sort of driving a lot of that versus like lung and liver and even heart transplant. Oftentimes, the transplanting team is going to actually go and procure it and do the transplant, you know, a few hours later, basically. Um, so very different dynamics. Wow. Yeah. No. And but it strikes me that like understanding and showing your partners, investors, whoever that um you've thought through and you've now identified that the sort of technical underpinnings of of reimbursement are going to be different by organ and that has implication yeah. x on our story either you know procuring kidneys or or perfusing kidneys is a better or worse opportunity because these certain factors are yeah at play no huh. exactly Exactly. And okay. it's not always this complicated. I think this yeah, is a pretty yeah. extreme example, but you know, these are the kind of times of things that you know, you can really get a good good sense of. And you know, this is something that, you know, we basically basically got a sense of in about a month and a half, two months of work to you know, get into all these sort of details. So again, it's not like we spent, you know, a year talking to transplanter physicians and payers. Um so, but anyway, it was really important for them. Yeah. How many how many payers do you think 
if you remember roughly how many you spoke with on that project. Yeah, probably like honestly of the sort of managed care payers, probably mm. only like three or four. We definitely yeah, covered, yeah. you know, hospital sort of, you know, transplant coordinators, um, the physicians themselves, you know, stakeholders or sort of medical directors at organ procurement organizations, but sort of a, you know, two or three of each really, um, we were able to get a pretty complete picture, obviously doing a lot of secondary research in addition to that. But, you know, that's, it's, it's, again, it's not like we needed to, they all, you know, they all kind of function similarly. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's fascinating because you can, yeah, that, that is, I would not have guessed that as a potential outcome of that type of project. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, it sounds like you, you, you guys were able to be pretty efficient about getting to the answer that, that, uh, that the client needed. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I think as, as Pete had mentioned uh, previously, we kind of want to explore, uh, some of the questions that, uh, the listeners and, and that our clients face and just kind of talk through how we might think about it. And, uh, to the extent that it's applicable, you know, previous project work that we've done that, that kind of shows the importance or highlights a particularly interesting aspect of that, uh, question. All right. Hope you found some insights here. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much, everyone. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Brendan and Christian. And thank you for listening to the Life Science Report. If you have a question about biopharma and medtech strategic development, partnering, licensing, or more, head over to the podcast page on our website and submit it, www.bblsa.com slash podcasts. Your question may be a topic for an upcoming podcast. We look forward to hearing from you.